What happened, my grandfather uh, found out about what had happened, my papa, that was his name, that's what we called him, papa, found out what happened, and he and my father had a very tough conversation. That time it was just a conversation. It didn't come to blows. came close, but it didn't come to blows. About a year later, it happened again on my birthday. He comes home, they're having a birthday party for me. Well, the birthday party was my mom, her closest friend, and her daughter. And that was it, and me. That was the birthday party. Big celebration. Well, he didn't like us having a birthday party and a celebration. He comes in, he's drunk, starts a fight with her. The two guests leave. They're going at it again. I go at, jump in the middle of it, as usual. He p- picks me by the shoulder, sets me down. He says, your birthday, huh? I said, yeah, happy birthday. Pow, broke my nose. He, run, he, run, he heads out the front door, but he comes back. I'm under the bed, crying, bleeding, fall asleep. I remember this, guys. <laughs> I remember this like it was yesterday. I wake up hearing a noise, and I crawl from under my bed and look out the front door, and I see my grandfather, my papa, beating the living hell out of my dad. I mean, it's to the point that he's on the ground and Papa's just grabbing him by the hair, smacking him. He'll fall back down. He grabs him by the hair, smacks him. I mean, he's defenseless. I thought he was going to kill him. And I think he came pretty close. Then he picked him up, threw him in the car, and told him if he ever saw him again, he'd kill him. And I believe he would have. Never saw my father again. Well, that's not true. Never saw my father again as a child. I saw him one time when I was 21 years old. I was standing in my uncle's garage. He owned an auto, auto shop. Standing in my uncle's job, and he'd ask me, while you were in town, did you go see your dad? Had never, hadn't seen him since, since he'd run off when I was a kid. Went to California and raised another family. I said, Uncle J.D., you're more of a father to me than that man ever was. I, I didn't really, I never knew him. Besides that, I hate his guts. And about that time, I hear somebody behind me say, yeah, how come you ain't stopped to see your old man? And I look back, and there he is. I grab him, slam him up against the wall, and said some curse words I won't say now, and haven't said in years, but it starts with SOB, and helped him up. If I ever, ever hear your voice again, I'll kill you. I dropped him, walked out the door. Never saw him again. He passed away a number of years ago. Heard about it two or three months after he passed away. That caused a problem for a little boy being raised without a father. It would have been a lot worse being raised with a father like that. I recognize that and give credit to God for that. (laughs) But it still caused me to be raised with this giant chip on my shoulder I didn't trust anybody I did 
any, almost anything I could think of to protect myself because I learned at a young age the only protection I had was myself or my papa. But most of my life I didn't get to live with my papa. That happened a little bit later in life, and I'll talk a second about that part. But I, be, I became not a very likable person. And I did things that, that, I won't go into all of the different things that I did, but I just wasn't much of a good guy. At 12 years old, my mother looks at me, sets, sets me down, and I think this was June, summer, I know that, 12 years old, and says to me, son, I don't have the ability to care for you. We were living on a farm out in the middle of Oklahoma, miles and miles away from anybody. Our closest neighbor was about a quarter mile away. After that, there wasn't a neighbor for probably 10 miles away. We lived way out in the country, in a little one-bedroom house. What we, we were what you call dirt poor. She didn't have a job. What we ate was what we raised on the land, or I killed, or stole. She says to me, I can't, <laughs> I can't handle you. Because I was pretty bad by that point. <laughs> I can't deal with it. I ain't got enough food for you. You're, I know you're providing some of it, but I can't handle it. She's in tears. <laughs> Leaves the room. Well, I take what I'm wearing, walk out of the house, walk a mile down the road to train tracks, sit there and wait. The particular section of track where the train going through has to slow down. I don't even know why, but it always had to slow down in that section. Jumped the train, rode it to Muskogee, switched tra trains, rode it to Tulsa, got off the train in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and lived in the streets of Tulsa, Oklahoma at 12 years old. Had some very rough things happening living in the streets of Tulsa. Most of it my fault because I had to take care of me. During the time I was there, one of the events that took place that did begin to take, take me and change me a little bit to realize I needed other people was I was at a drive-in theater, outside of a drive-in theater, actually we'd left after it was over, and a young man who I have never seen in my life to this day, don't know who he was. I'm going to tell you the whole story for some of you that heard part of it in the other session. We'll be more direct about it. He walks up to me. I've got my right hand in my pocket. I always have my right hand in my pocket because that's where I had a switchblade. Nine-inch stiletto. I always carried that for safety. I had my hand in my pocket on my stiletto. He walks up to me and puts a gun right between my eyes. Says, I'm going to blow your effing brains out. Never saw him before. Don't know who he was. Don't know why he wanted to shoot me. But evidently he did. <laughs> I did the only thing I could think of, which was grab the gun and jerk and hit the blade and slice it across here on him. But the gun went off, shot me in the leg. First time I ever found out I had anybody that cared for me, that I think felt, and to this day still think, cared for me. Four guys rushed around me, got, rushed me out of there. One guy threw me over his shoulder and they carried me out of there and took me to a guy they called Doc, old black doctor, who patched me up, 
Fortunately, the gunshot had not gone into my leg, but had gone through the side and chipped the bone a little bit, but, but just made a gash. And he patched me up. Didn't call the police. Didn't take me to the hospital. We didn't go to the hospital because if I found out who I was, then where would I have ended up? Back home. Now, I don't tell you all that. Well, let me give you a little bit more. I developed a reputation when I finally got, finally got back home. Uh, I won't go into that part of the story because then it takes way too much time, but I ended up back home. My papa had retired and moved out to the farm, was building a house, and he was able to help us and take care of us. And that's what brought the two of us, brought me back to the farm, put us back together. Um, I almost forgot where I was going there. Anyway, um, so I got I still being, got back on the farm, being raised, but, but still had some roughness in me. One of the things I had learned to do to keep myself protected was develop a reputation that I was crazy. People don't want to mess with crazy people. I don't know if you know that or not, but people don't want to mess with crazy people. If somebody started picking on me, and I mean just picking on me. If they laid hands on me, it wasn't going to be a fight. It was going to be a war. Somebody was going to have to pull me off of them because I'd kill them. And I was doing that not because I was so mad at them. I think that was part of it. But I was doing that because I wanted to be thought of as crazy because if I was crazy, people wouldn't mess with me. And I didn't want to be messed with. I didn't trust or like anybody. I also developed another reputation into something I went into later in life that I won't, I won't talk about, but I'll talk about the reputation. I developed a reputation that I didn't have a conscience. So if there was a bad, dirty job that needed to be done, no matter how bad and how dirty it was, that most people would look at and go, my conscience won't allow me to do that. They'd come to me because my conscience would allow me to do anything. I didn't have one. Well, at least that's what I made everybody believe. Because again, if you don't have a conscience, what are you? Huh? Sociopath? Sociopath? <laughs> yeah, you're crazy. And people don't want to mess with crazy people. See, I developed this whole thing, this shell around me, so nobody would mess with me. Because every time anybody messed with me, it caused me harm, starting with my father. Did a lot of damage. People raised without a father have a lot of damage done to them. Now, a lot of you can be sitting there thinking, okay, why is he telling us this story? He's telling us this story so that you will feel sorry for me. That's one thought that might be going through your brain. I promise you that's not true. I don't need anybody feeling sorry for me. That's, that's not it. Others would say, well, he's telling you that to brag about how bad he is, about how, you know, how, this, how crazy he is. Yeah. No, that ain't it either. I mean, I ain't crazy anymore. One of y'all pick on me, I'm going to laugh because I'm an old fragile old man and laughing's the easiest defense I know. <laughs> No, it ain't about bragging. It, it ain't about trying to bring glory to me. But here is what it's about. This is the main reason I've shared, shared with you a hard part of my life that I don't even like to share. If God can take me, this messed up person, 
I was badly messed up. And then take me and use me for his glory. There ain't a one of you in here he can't take and use for his glory. You can't sit here in this room and, and sit here and honestly believe God can't use you. Because if he could use me, I guarantee you he could use you. Because I don't believe there's anybody in here that was more messed up in the head than I was. Not that some of you might not have gone through worse than I went through. Maybe you did. So maybe you was messed up in the head as I was. But I don't think there's anybody here more messed up than I was. And God still took me and used me. And if he can use me, he can use you. And I'm telling you, not only can he use you, he will use you. God will use anybody, and he will use you. But before he can use us, the first thing we've got to make sure is that we have an eternal focus, not a temporal focus. Here's what I mean about the difference. I think Francis Chan, I almost, put, I almost got the video and showed it, but figured a bunch of y'all had already seen it, so I didn't want to bother with it. But it, Francis Chan uses a, a rope in one of his sermons. He takes a rope and puts a little... Line, uh, darkness on the end of, on the rope. I think it's green. I, I think, if I remember the video, and the rest of the rope is is tan. And he he runs the rope all the way out and all the way out the door. And he tells you, I want you to take use this as an analogy. So I want you to look at this rope. He said, and it represents eternity. Just pretend the rope goes forever and never stops. And this little piece that's at the end is your life on earth. This is your time on earth. So now why is it everybody in this room spends all of their energy, all of their thinking, all of their actions on this little bitty part here, but they're going to be alive for all this part here, and they don't spend any time here. An eternal focus, the difference between an eternal and a temporal, temporal focus is all focusing all your attention on that little bitty part, the time we're going to have here on earth. An eternal focus says, whatever I do here in this little, this little bitty part, this green part, whatever I do here, I need to do how it's going to affect me here. Because if I don't do how it's going to affect me here, I'm just plain stupid. difference between being stupid and crazy. Well, I'll demonstrate that later. <laughs> you know, if it doesn't, what we do here doesn't affect, isn't being done to what's going to affect eternity. If it doesn't affect eternity, what good is it? I mean, honestly, what good is it? I see it all the time, especially I've seen it now in the generations that you're being raised in. Social justice is huge, right? I mean, you, you all want to do something, your generation, and a lot of y'all aren't like that. The guys that come here are pretty much different from the generation that a lot of people have been talking about today, different than you were talking about today, different than I'm talking about for, for that group, but... They do things to help people. They're driven to go help and be a part and make a difference. But the difference they want to make is here in the temporal part. You know what I mean by that? We, we had a group one time at a, at a place I was working that had, had a deal where they brought in youth groups from all over the country. And they would go and paint. They'd line up a bunch of houses and they'd go paint the houses. I mean, that's a great social justice thing, isn't it? Youth groups had a great time doing it. They had fun doing it. They got out and they painted all these houses for people that couldn't afford to paint their own houses. I mean, it was a good thing to do. But by the time it was all done, 
the people's houses that got painted didn't even know why the houses got painted. They, they didn't know about Jesus. So what bothers me about that kind of thinking and that kind of social justice is that someday we're going to be standing with those people, I painted your house. Hey, in Judgment Day, I painted your house. Yeah, you did. You did paint my house. Why didn't you tell me about this? Because now I'm facing the judge. And you knew about it and didn't tell me. While you was painting my house, couldn't you have told me about it? Because you know, it's cool and all you painted my house for there. But what about the rest of this? Is that too harsh? What good is it if it doesn't introduce them to Jesus? It's actually disgusting. It's just feel good. It's, oh, ain't no girls in here, is it? Ain't no ladies in here. Ain't supposed to be. Guys? <laughs> and Matt, guys, it's masturbation. That's all it is. And that's just sick. Self-gratification is just sick. And that's what focusing on the temporal part is. And that's not who we're supposed to be. We're supposed to be people that are focusing on this eternity. What am I doing here in this part that's going to affect here? Because if all it's going to do is affect here, it's a waste of time. It's self-gratification. And that's what makes it sick. We have to have an eternal focus. Second, we've got to be a people that recognize our past our present and our future, our past and our present are preparing us for our future. Everything that has happened to you in your past and everything that is happening to you right now is preparing you for your future. God has a plan for every single one of us. And everything we go through, whether it's good or it's bad, is to prepare us for use in His family. He doesn't let anything go to waste. He takes it all and uses it to His glory. Now hear me generously, because some of you may be thinking something. I'm saying something I'm not saying. I am not saying God puts us through bad things in order to prepare us. I'm not saying that. God did not kill my papa and my mamma and my mother to prepare me and, and put me through that bad childhood that I went through. He didn't do that to prepare me for his glory in the future. What he did was take all of that that happened and use what, what's happened there to prepare me for use in his glory. Does that make sense? Do you understand what I'm saying? God prepares us and then he puts us in his family right where he wants us to be. See, God is real big about repurposing. I don't know if you've seen it lately. If, you might not have caught it because I didn't catch things like this when I, was, when I was your age. It just didn't occur to me. It's kind of what was going on in a generational way. And that 
you start seeing repeated everywhere else. But right now in your generation, repurposing is a huge thing, especially when it comes to pallets. I, I don't know what the obsession with pallets is with, with the ladies, but they are obsessed with pallets. I don't know if you guys know that. They're obsessed with pallets. Every church building I go into now, including our own, there'll be some place in the building that there's a bunch of pallets put together and made into a semi-wall where they can take pictures in front of. And You know what I'm talking about? Do y'all see that at your places? It's, it's at all the churches in our, in our place. It's in our own building, two different buildings. There they are. Matter of fact, we've been doing videos to prepare for a service we're doing, to have testimonies, and the videos that they're doing them on, the background is pallets. How did I know the background would be pallets? Anyway, I was saying, God prepares us and puts us in his family right where he wants us to be. Think I'm stretching it? You think that might not be true? Let's look at a few scriptures. Look over at Ephesians 4. 11 through 16. Ephesians 4, 11 through 16. I see some of you don't have God's word. Shame on you. Um, I didn't say that out loud. No. Okay. Ephesians 4, 11 through 16. And I'll go ahead and read it. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip his people for works of service. Why? So that the body of Christ may be built up until we reach, all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then, after that, after he's done that, then we'll no longer be infants talk, tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. Instead... Speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. For him, the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as, I read all this to get to this, but you had to read all that to get to this. Each part does its work. What do you see there? Those of you that have these words, you can look at and, and dig through a little bit. What do you see? Talk to me out loud. What do you see? Body. What? Body. The body? Okay. Purpose? First stuff doesn't happen unless we do the work. I like it. What else do you see? No wrong answers. Body doesn't function if we don't work together. That's what you said. Yes, sir. The works of God behind the scenes. Works. He's working behind the scenes. Okay. Okay. Being anchored in God's truth. I like that. I like what you're seeing there. One more. Okay, so people doing, yep, each part does its work. We're not all doing the same work, are we? We're not all doing, it takes each one of us doing different ones to make it all work. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 12, 
12 through 20. 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 20. Just as a body, the one, has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized into one spirit, so as to form one body. Whether Jews, Gentiles, slaves, free, we were all given the one spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. Now, if the foot should say, because I'm a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not, for that reason, stop being part of the body. If the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not, for that reason, stop being a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed the parts of the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. What do you see? Well, this was pretty obvious. Should be. What do you see? Say that loud. Can't have one without the other, okay. There you go. And keep looking. Goes back to my original point. Where did he put them? Right where he wants them to be. Giving them the tools he wants them to have. Giving them the experiences in their past he wants them to have. Not giving them experiences. Use the experiences so that he, they can be ready for the future glory that he has ready for them. See, we're all part of one body. And every one of you have a role to play in that body. And that's what this is saying. I want to, I want to look at one more. One last one. 1 Peter 2, 9 and 12. This one's short. It's going to make the point huge. But you, who's you? Right here. That's you. This is you. All right. Take this and eternalize it. He says, you are a chosen people. You are a chosen people. Do you see that? That should make you feel good. If it don't, hang on. You're a royal priesthood. All of us. You're a chosen people. You're a royal priesthood. A holy nation. God's special what? Possession. Possession. How could you seem insignificant when the God of all creation says, you, my friend, are chosen. You're royal. You're holy. You're my special possession. How could you feel insignificant when God says that to you? Well, that's what he's saying to everybody in this room. That's who we are. Look what comes next. Why are we a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession? 
Why? That you may declare the praises of him who called you out of the darkness and into the wonderful light. That's why we're a royal priesthood. That's why we're a chosen possession. That's why God looks at you and says, you are mine. That you may declare the praises of him who called you out of the darkness and into the light. So, in verse 12, live such good lives since you're a royal possession, a chosen people, a holy nation, God's sovereign, special possession. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on that day. Putting it all together, here's what I see. God, the Creator, has prepared you and that means every single one of you, none of you are exempt from it. He has prepared you for mighty works to bring Him glory. See, our job in this part is to bring Him glory. I won't go into this long part. I'll just make it real, real short. I believe the way we bring Him glory is bringing other people to Him. Short proof of that. Why did he send his son to the earth? To save the lost. He loved the world so much that he sent his son to die on a cross to save lost people. He loves people so much he wants them to back in relationship with him. Everything he does on this earth is driven to accomplish that purpose. If we're going to be his people, his royal priesthood, if we're going to be those people, his special possession, if we're going to be them, then we've got to be driven to do the same thing he wants done. And that's what he just said here. He's pre prepared you and he's placed you right where he wants you to be. Now, now hear that. He placed you right where he wants you to be. <laughs> but Lynn, wait a second. <laughs> I'm tired of living in in the blank. Everybody does it at your age bracket. Man, I was born and raised here in, give me a city you live in. Chicago, Claremore, Oklahoma. Claremore, Oklahoma. Whew, boy, if you live there, you sure want to get out. No. <laughs> and, and I want to move. So here we go. And I want to move. I want to get out. I don't want to live in Claremore, Oklahoma. Wait a minute. God placed me right where he wants me to be, but I want to get out. I, I'm from Huntsville, Alabama. I'm tired of being from Huntsville, Alabama. I want to move. I want to move to Florida where it's nice and warm. Man, I'm living in Tulsa, Oklahoma. I want to move. I want to go to Corpus Christi, Texas. That's where I went the first time. Yeah. I was there 17 years. Yeah, I'm back in Tulsa. I went to Corpus. I went to Florida trying to chase the same thing, this dream of this great place you could live. Lived in Corpus 17 years. Corpus, I mean, uh, Florida, 12 years. Because I wanted to be in that warm climate and that great, you know, it's like everybody talks about you. you go to the beach and it's great and it's fun. Yeah, it is. You know, when you live there, you don't get to go to the beach as much as you think you do. You get to go to the beach more when you don't live there than you do when you do live there. But that's another story. I was chasing the same thing a whole lot of years sitting there thinking, I want to be somewhere else. I got, I, got, I got something to tell you. You may not like it. It's a newsflash. Um, it's not about you. God doesn't care where you want to live. That's temporal focus. 
It's about him. See, when people start, when people really get that, and it's hard to get, especially at your age when you're wanting out, it's really hard to get. But when you change the focus and what your focus is on, is on this eternity, you're saying to God, man, Father, it ain't about where I live. I'll live wherever you tell me. And if that's right here where I grew up, then I'll live right here where I grew up because I'm going to work for your glory. I'm going to bring glory to you. I ain't interested in moving unless you want me to move. You want me to live in Florida? Now, you always tell me to tell you what I would like. Well, I would like to live there because it's warmer there. You know, things like that. But it should come with a caveat. But whatever you want, I'm going I'm to work for you right here. I can't tell you how many young kids I've had come to me over the years with this presentation. Want me to give them money so they could go on a vacation. Okay, mission trip. Mission trip. Want me to give them money so they go on a mission trip. And without exception, over my lifetime, and I'm old, <laughs> I've been in church a long time with them asking me for a long time. Without exception, every one of them that have come to me to ask me for money to go on a mission trip, not one of them have I ever seen fighting for a soul. Not one of them. But they want me to give them the money and they're going to sit there and tell me, now when I get to Africa, I'm going to go save people. Really? How many of you saved here? None. Well, then what makes you think you're going to go save them there? If you won't save people here, why are you going to tell, try to convince me you'll save people there? When you start saving people here, come back and talk to me and ask me for that money, and you want to go to Africa on a mission trip, I'll give you some money to go when you're saving people here. Ain't none of them ever come back and ask for money. I wonder why that is. I'll let you meddle on that one for a little while. Third, let's look at our role and what God has prepared us and placed us to do. I'm going to try to get real practical here, and I'm going to use some people in, in trying to get practical to make the point. First, I'm going to talk, I'm going to have a friend come up here. Kevin, I want you to come up for a second. I met Kevin, I forget time, a long time ago, and he was a campus minister down in, in Louisiana, and he um, did something really dumb. He invited me to come down and do a, 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 a uh, what do you call it, a retreat? Yeah. A retreat for him. It was really dumb because I knew that was the beginning of the end um, because um, he was going to end up getting fired if he tried to do anything I taught him, which was to reach lost people, by the way, because he was at a church where if you bring in a lost person, I don't know if y'all know this or not, being in, in Winsville or in some of the places you're at, but when you bring in lost people, they got problems. Yeah, y'all know that, right? I mean, I'm, I said that, did you not see the sarcasm was dripping little words when I said it? Lost people come with a whole set of problems, don't they? Well, some of them might come in and they're wearing a hat when they come into church. They don't know the traditions of your church building there. You ain't supposed to wear a hat when you're inside the building. What's the matter with you? Right? They don't know that. So when you start bringing those kind of folk in, guess what they do? Well, he's got an elders meeting. He said, man, brother, we need to talk. Uh, they don't use these words, but this is what they say. This is what the translation. You're baptizing the wrong kind of people. Why don't you go find some doctors and lawyers and stuff like that? You know, people... People that have money and don't have all these problems. Because people that have money don't have problems. You all know that? I didn't know that. I never had money. So I wasn't aware of it. But I've learned that from elders' meetings. Rich people don't have problems. They just have money to give us and keep the church building pretty. Uh, it's important to have church building pretty. You all know that, right? 
You've never been to my church building, have you? Uh, anyway, got Kevin down there, got him in trouble. He started saving people, and the church said, Brother, you need to leave. And so he left and came up to train with us. But he had some stuff to deal with. He, he learned real quick he had some stuff to deal with. I'm going to let him share with you stuff he had to deal with. So growing up, I grew up in a very upscale neighborhood and everything, and I was always told that I had to have excellence in all things. It was even in my elementary school, posted on the wall, excellence in all things, right? So, you know, I, I, I was told I was special, that I had, uh, I was going to change the world, that I was going to go out and do these things. So uh, because of that, it just kind of built up this whole entire life of pride inside of me to a point where it was, it was bad. I was steamrolling people. I was not really seeking and saving lost people. I thought it was just going to be, you know, about me. I even got into ministry, and this sounds kind of crazy. I got into ministry because of me, not because of this wonderful God that saved me, but I got in because of me. And the thing about it is I wanted to be top dog. I wanted to be the best. I wanted to be the best minister ever, but because of me. And Satan ate it up. He put this demon of pride right on my shoulder for a long time, just speaking into my ear. It's about you. It's about you. It's okay. And the thing about it is when I, uh, you know, steamrolling people and just having all this pride inside of me, you know, it's not like I'm killing anyone. I'm not lying to anyone, right? Still a problem. Still something that is an issue, and it was wrong. Then I moved to Tulsa, <laughs> you know, after it cost me relationships, two jobs in ministry, uh, just everything along those lines. And when I moved to Tulsa, God started humbling me and used Lynn and Clint Hill to really do that because they began pointing out my pride problem. They came to me, they sat me down and said, Kevin, you have an issue with pride. And you need to take care of this. And they started showing me different times that they could see pride just dripping out of my life and just oozing out. It was disgusting. And it broke my heart. But at first I was like, Psh, I don't have a pride problem. What are you talking about? This is okay. It's okay. And then the community around me started coming to me. Take this to know if multiple people come and tell you the same things in different situations about yourself, it's probably true. So multiple people started coming and was like, Kevin, you have a pride problem. You have a pride problem. So it broke my heart and I got serious about it. And Lynn and Clint gave me some resources to help me, you know, not just prayer and scripture, but books and articles. And Lynn even prepared multiple times for me to actually try and um, see if I, where I was going with my pride and growing, uh, everything from uh, taking me to his, uh, I guess it was training center for fighting, and, uh, you know, he actually let me eat a whole steak sandwich before I went and trained, and let's just say that didn't end well. Uh, it, was, it was a bad situation, but how I reacted after that helped me see my pride. So those opportunities there, just consistently do it. I don't beat pride every day. It's a daily choice. But the thing about it is what I've done to beat it and beat it consistently and more and more is first off, I surround myself with my community 
because they're going to love me and tell me where I'm wrong and when I'm being prideful. I'll start listening to those who uh, love me and then taking the words of the Holy Spirit and taking them and putting them in my heart. And those words of the Holy Spirit were also coming through Lynn and Clint and my community. And then also choosing to change for the sake of the mission because it was ruining my opportunities with people. And then also buying into the resources that helped me beat pride through God's word and through other books. If you have an issue with pride and you want to change, come talk to me. I would love to be able to help any way I can, guys. Thanks. Now, I warned him if he didn't do an adequate job of describing the event that he talked about for a second, <clears throat> about the going to the gym part, I was going to further explain that one for you. For him. Um, he, he, we were really dealing with, with the demon of pride really hard with him in a particular moment in time. I mean, and I was beating my brain thinking, what do I got to do to show him and make him see and realize this? And I can't, he was asking to go to the gym, go to the gym. Always bugging me, wanted to go down to the gym. I thought, okay, I got this. I said, okay. I said, all right, I'm going to let you come to the gym. Tuesday night, come, come down to the gym. We start at 9 o'clock. Come down ready to work out. Wear your sweats, wear whatever you got to do. So he asked me earlier in the day, I'm going to steak stuff for us to eat lunch. I'd be all right, right? Yeah, I'd be fine. Go eat, go eat good lunch. You'll be ready by supper. You'll be fine. By 9 o'clock at night, you'll be, oh, you'll be fine. He eats big old steak stuffers. I, some of y'all know what steak stuffers is. Just a giant Philly steak. A lot of meat. He eats, eats big one. Fills up. Shows up at the gym. Ready to work out. Well, we go through the warm-up exercise and then just the first basics of throwing a few punches. And all of a sudden, I see him rushing out the back door. And I hear him yelling, Ralph, loud. I don't think I've ever heard anybody throw up loud as he did. Bad. <clears throat> well, it, it happened again later, another, a second time he was at the gym. That's a whole another story. I won't get go into full length of that, but he was real embarrassed by what had happened and was mad at me. Him and his wife scheduled a meeting with me. I was about to schedule one with him, but I didn't because... He asked me, oh, cool, this is really going to work great. And they have a meeting with me to come and explain to me how cruel, <laughs> using his wife too, how cruel I had been to embarrass him in front of all those people. And then I broke it to him. I did that on purpose, Kevin. Because you've got a real problem with pride. And you told me when you came here to train to do whatever I had to do to fight the demons off of you. And we've been trying hard to get the demon of pride off of you, and look how you're reacting to what just happened. It's a blame game, right? I'm not telling this to beat him up. I'm telling you to see how severe the problem of the demon was that we were fighting, and we were in a real fight. He's come a long way, and he ain't no longer dealing with that problem. I'll tell you that right now. He don't deal with the problem, demon of pride. He's come a long way and done well. But at that time... He had a lesson to learn, and he learned it. What was his role in fighting off the demon of pride? 
Acknowledging, number one, he had the issue. Okay, very good. Had to be willing to change. Okay. Had to seek help. Good. Somebody had to love him enough to persevere. What was our job? What was our role in his fight with this demon? Huh? To be there with him. To be there with him. Beard is so thick, you, you can't get the words past it. <laughs> Anybody else? What was our role as, as, as part of the body? What was our role? If you'd been there, what would have been your role? Whatever God wants you to do, is that what you said? Fight alongside of him? They, yes, absolutely. Now, if you're sitting there thinking my role would have been nothing, I would have ignored it, should well, you got a real problem. You got a demon on you too that he had just like he had on him. And somebody needs to help you and fight off because because we're brothers. And when you see a demon on us, you're supposed to be fighting it off. We all got a duty to get in it. Our duty is not to look at it and go, you're dealing with a demon of pride. <laughs> Good luck with that. He's a tough one. I ain't helping. That ain't our job. Our job is to help our brothers and sisters, isn't it? I got one more. Mike, where you at? We ran into Mike out at a community college in Tulsa, and uh, Mike had some issues. He had one very specific demon he had to uh, engage. I'll let him tell you about it. Okay. So, as Lynn just said, uh, I was at Tulsa Community College, and... One of my best friends actually introduced me to the group, and Roxanne Eddington. And no, let's back up. Sorry. Um, I was born and raised in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and I was three weeks late when I came out. I had no oxygen going in my body at all, so I was completely blue when I was born. I was in the NICU in Philadelphia, 50 miles from my parents. And that happened for about, oh, a month and a half, two months. That wasn't the only thing that has hindered my life. I was born with a walking disability called muscular dystrophy. What that is, is it's a muscle weakness in my legs that throws me off balance and keeps me from doing everyday activities from walking up these steps up in these hotels or running or playing baseball or just whatever you think is fun. When I had met Roxanne at TCC, I was letting my disability run my life. And it wasn't until I had a meeting with Kevin and Brent that they had showed me that it didn't matter what physical limitations I had, but that God was there for me and that the battle wasn't mine. Second Chronicles 2015 says, battle isn't ours, but it's God's. And that's what I was letting happen. I was 
battling my own battle. I wasn't letting God take control. And then two years ago tomorrow, I was baptized in the pool outside. Since then, I had decided to let God battle my battles for me and let my community battle it for me as well. So I got a question for you guys. Whatever you're battling right now, don't let it stop you. Keep fighting the fight, but let God do most of the work. Are you truly living for him or are you living for yourself? Mike was in a very tough battle with the demon of self-worth. What his body had done to him was causing him to doubt him, his, his will to even live. That he wasn't, well, he kind of said the word. He was disabled. Mike ain't disabled. Some of you might say, no, no, wait a minute, he is disabled. No, he ain't. Mike is prepared special to reach people that I can't, or you, or a lot of other people that don't have his, the issue he's dealing with, can't reach. I, I call that special, not disabled. God's given him special abilities to do something none of the rest of us can do. But here's the caveat to that. Every one of you in here have got the same thing going on. God's made every one of us unique and made you in such a way that you can reach people the guy sitting next to you can't reach. I started to say that you reach people that I can't, but that's not real hard because every one of you is so much younger than me. You've got a lot of options that I don't have. The guy sitting next to you, you get that? God's placed you right where he wants you to be. All of us, including Mike and Kevin, have a role in their fight. But we look at that and we might say, well, Liam, but what if I don't like my role? What if I want an important role? Well, those, these guys already know what I'm going to say. Again, really, it's not about you. <laughs> it's not about what you want. Hear this. Sometimes, seemingly insignificant roles are huge roles. They're big roles, but they may appear to you at the time to be an ins insignificant role. Every role is important, even if you're not noticed when you're in the role. I'm going to give you a quick scriptural, biblical example. This is a very short story in the Bible, overlooked by most of the people that read the Bible. 1 Samuel chapter 14, you'll find the story of Jonathan and his armor bearer. For 10 point Bible points, who in here can name the armor bearer. What's his name? Come on, somebody. What's his name? The armor bearer. Anybody? No, no, y'all read your Bible? Abner, what? Nebuchadnezzar. Nobody reads their Bible? I'm going to give you his name. He ain't named. All he's called is armor bearer. Jonathan's armor bearer. How weak is that? 
How important is his role in all of this creation story and all of this story that plays out through the Bible and this giant event that takes place with Jonathan and the armor bearer, which is a huge, fabulous story. I changed his name or gave him a name. I didn't change it. I decided to give him a name. And I've used it all the time. I use it with my people. I use it with y'all today. You know what it is? Mighty warrior. Because I'm going to tell you, you read this story. This man is a mighty warrior. Here's how the story plays out. I was going to read the scriptures and give them to you, but I'm just going to just play, play it out here. Here's how it works. Saul and what was left of his army had been just whittled down to the point that they were just scared and they were basically hiding under a pomegranate tree, waiting for the Philistine army to surround them and kill them. It's all over. They've lost. They're done. Jonathan says to mighty warrior, hey, Let's go pick a fight. Maybe God will be with us. Now, if I'm the armor bearer instead of mighty warrior, my, my answer is, are you crazy? There's thousands of Philistines out there. We walk out there to take the two of us, take on thousands. We'll, we'll be slaughtered. It's called suicide. <laughs> Thought I was going to say suicide by cop, right? Suicide by Philistine. That's what it's called. I'm going to walk out there and they're going to kill me. So if, if that's what you want, I'll go with you. But you're, you're nuts. No. You know what Mighty Warrior says instead? If you look at your Bible, you know what he said? I'm with you, heart and soul. Now, that's a warrior. That's the kind of warrior you want on your side. Man, you out in the middle of a problem, you're in the midst of it, and there's a bunch of them out there that's going to do, do you some harm, and you look over at your buddy and you say, Man, let's go. Let's take them on. And he says, I'm with you, heart and soul. You know you got something, right? Well, they get out there in that fight. I, again, I'll make it Lynn Stringfellow version, short, short version. They get out there and he says, Scripture says they sh expose themselves. They show themselves to the Philistines. <laughs> I, I don't know why, but I have this picture that they walk out into the open, you know, because it says that there's a cliff above them. So they walk out with us in the opening below and this cliff with the Philistines up there and they go, hey, hey, come on, let's fight. Let's do this. Thousands of Philistines. Let's do it. Let's fight. And the Philistines are yelling back, yeah, if you want to fight? Come up here. We'll, we'll whip you. Come on up here. So they got to climb the cliff first instead of them come down. Now, a, a normal sane person would go, no, I'm not going to do all that work to climb a cliff and fight you. Y'all come down here. Or I'm just going to go back into hiding. And armor bearer about that time going, come here, come here, come here. She's seeing all the Philistines. But that ain't what happens. Because part of the story is he's made a deal. You know, if, God, if they say this, that's God telling us we're going to take them. They start climbing the cliff. And it says as they climb in the cliff, he's killing people. Jonathan's killing people. Sword mighty warriors right behind him. And what's he doing? You read, your, you read it, you read, read that Bible, he's killing too. They kill over 20 men in that one setting. God, because they showed enough faith to go take on, two people go take on an army, God creates all this confusion. Saul and his army come out there and they rout the Philistines. That insignificant role, that insignificant story, a person who's not even named creates, well, it saves the Christ lineage. That's what it does. 
It saved Saul and his army. And if you really pay attention to your scriptures, it saved Christ's lineage. That little insignificant event where the armor bearer could say, I'm not even named. I didn't even, I, I didn't even get a mention. Right? Insignificant role was not an insignificant role. Many times our roles go unimportant, unnoticed. Our important roles go unnoticed. Sure, you see your campus minister, your preaching minister, your small group leader do something that seems like a big role. You say, I want to be like them. I want to do that. And most of the time, the role you see and you envy is really the most insignificant role they played in the whole situation. Every speaker you've seen up here this weekend, you might see them and go, I want to be up there doing that. But what you didn't see, because you saw them stand up here speak, what you didn't see is the time they spent on their knees in tears with God in fear about standing and speaking in front of you, making sure they're giving you God's word and not theirs. Please give me the words to say because I don't know what to say. I, I am this messed up kid whose father beat him. I don't know what to say. How am I going to talk to these men? I'm old. How are they going to listen to me? You don't hear, see all that stuff that takes place. All you see is what takes place with speaking, and you want to be like that. Well, to be like that, you also got to be the other part. You also got to be the one that humbles yourself and on your knees and crying out to the Father. You got to do both, that insignificant part. My point, there's no such thing as an insignificant role. Whatever role God has you play is significant. Now my last point, but not my least one. We need to never stop growing in our role. So how do I continue to grow in my role? I'm glad you asked. I'm trying to hurry up. It's called initiative. You have to be a people that take initiative. The basis of the little simple example of this is when you see something that needs doing, you do it. When you show up at your, wherever you are, what church ever you are, wherever your college group meets and you're there and you look over and you see the trash can full, guess what? God just tapped you on the shoulder and said, you're the one that's supposed to go empty it because you noticed it. You saw something supposed to do. That's the Holy Spirit talking to you when that happens. Really? The Holy Spirit's telling me to take out the trash? Yeah, that's insignificant role. That's a big one because there might be a guest that comes in and it says, you know, I don't want to be a part of a place that's so dirty. That's why I mop the floor at our place twice a week. So when they walk in, it don't smell like y'all's feet and butt. <laughs> so it doesn't stink and people won't come in and go, oh, man, I can't even be in this room, let alone be a part of this group. Insignificant roles. When you see something needs to be done, doing it. A person that is growing in their role has their eyes open. When they walk into any situation... They're looking for ways to make it better. They're looking for ways that affect eternity, not the temporal. Second, they're always willing to take advice and then work hard at getting better. Some of you know that I train professional fighters. Oh, where's AJ? Is AJ in? Better be in here. Come here, AJ. AJ is... AJ is a young man that came into our gym, I don't know, a month or two ago. Hadn't been there very long. Just to start training. Wants to learn how to fight. So he's come into our gym to start training. Now, that's not why he's here. I didn't bring him here to do this. He's going to do it anyway. But uh, brought him, I brought him here to... Uh, he came here because I care for his soul. That's why I invited him to Panama City. Okay? 
It didn't have nothing to do with this demonstration, but the fact that he was here, I said, hey, I'm going to make the point I'm making by using you. I told him what I was going to do, and he's like, all right, cool, I'll do it. So it's real simple. At training professional fighters, we have things that, that uh, happen all the time. We have to teach. We start everybody, every class, as a matter of fact, with what you'd call basics, little simple things. And I don't care who you are. We have two world champions in our gym, and they all go through this exact same basics every single class during the warm-up phases and the first phases of work. First thing they'll learn is throw a jab. Okay, pop it. Okay, they learn to throw a jab. Then they learn to throw a jab in a right hand. Jab in a right hand, okay? And we talk to them about balance, keeping their balance, keeping their hands up, all that kind of stuff. And that, that's the first two levels, jab in the right hand. Then it's, then it's called one, two, three, jab, right hand, and a hook. Okay, jab, right hand, and a hook. Okay, breathe. Okay. Drop it. Drop it. No, no. Keep throwing. Keep throwing. Yeah, your right hand. There you go. Keep going. Good. One more. What happened? Why did that happen? Dropped his right hand, right? We're always working on the basics. Why is it so important to keep the right hand up? Because that guy is fighting. When those hands are flying, he's, you know, he's picking and blocking, but he's also looking. He's got any skill. He says, oh, man, when he threw that left hook, that right hand went down. I'm going to throw a left hook and knock him out. <laughs> right? Okay, so then they, we, all, we always put them through the, those basics. Well, then there's a the next level we start taking them to after they've been there a little bit longer. Okay, the next level we say, we'd say throw a two, three, two, two. Rock back on a two. Rock back on another two. There you go. Two, three, two. And then rock back on another two. Okay. There you go. So that's another level up. They're learning to throw. Their, this is teaching the fighter when he's got inside where the hands will land and his long arms. This is inside. For me, for me, you know, it's, it's right here. But for him, it's way out here. Well, then, then there's another level we'd take him to. Okay, you throw a two, three, two, step over two. Good, okay? Now what that is, most fighters, till you get to a pretty high proficiency level, when I throw it in, inside and throw a technique on them, and I take that step over, put your hands up, and I take that step over, guess what they'll do? Until they're a very experienced fighter, guess what they'll do? They'll drop that hand a little so they can see me. They'll be here, the guy steps over, and they'll drop this hand to look over where they are. They won't step, they won't back up. The first instinct is drop this hand and look. So when they throw that two, three, two, three, two, step over and that hand drop, bam! I just set him up for a hard right hand. Next level training, right? Thanks. The fighters that continually work at getting better at what they do and what they learn are always willing to learn the next level techniques. They're always growing, they're always getting better, but they'll always have to work on the basics and get the basics down first. Since we have in our gym two world champions, I have this event take place on a regular basis. Even I'll throw AJ under the bus, even AJ did this. They'll come into the gym, well actually this is a good thing he did. Uh, they'll come into the gym and what us coaches are teaching them so when you're throwing those techniques we're working on, those basics we're working on, when you throw them, 
Whatever that hand comes from, when it comes from here, it returns to here so that your jaw is protected. Shoulders protecting your jaw, hands coming back and protecting you. So you're, so you're protected. We teach them to, simple, keep your hands up. And we pound it into them. We'll do things like duct tape the right hand up if they won't do it. We'll take duct tape and tape their hand up. So, okay, now drop your hand. Well, I can't. Exactly. We're going to leave you that way the whole class because you're dropping your right hand every time you throw it. A lot of problems dropping your right hand when you throw it. You drop your right hand to throw it. Power in boxing is all about leverage. Taking tight leverage is body weight times speed at point of impact. So if I can take my entire from head to toe body weight and transfer it at full speed to the end of the punch, I've got maximum power. If I hit you with that, you're going out. I don't care who you are. With that much weight and the speed behind it, you're going out. Okay? That's called leverage. Every inch I drop my right hand to throw it, I lose that much weight. So when you see fighters, like Brent's favorite fighter, who I hesitate to call. He ain't a boxer, he's a fighter. Y'all know who I'm talking about. Mayweather showed him what was up. When he throws a right hand, it goes from here. How much weight's he got behind that? When he drops it to here to throw it, he's lost all this body weight, all of it. He hit Mayweather with that. What's Mayweather do? Whap. <laughs> what was that? That's like a girl slapping me. You ain't got no weight behind it. You can't hurt me with it. How are you going to hurt me with a punch you dropped from down here? Second problem with the punch that came from down here, every fighter I've ever seen that throw punches from down here turn their hand over first. So when they throw the punch, they're just pushing. That's all they're doing. They, got no, they can't have the body weight behind it because they're just pushing. It's like pushing a car. They can't hurt you with it. That's why you'll see guys getting hit. Wham, 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 wham. They just walk right through it. Because they ain't got no weight behind it. They ain't because the guy that's getting hit's got such a tough head. It really ain't what it is. It's because you ain't hit with any power. And in order to do that, you have to develop it. I wanted all that to tell you. <laughs> Since we've got two world champions in our gym, we're teaching these guys to keep their hands up. They look over at our world either one of our world champions, and they're working out, and they're shadow boxing, and their hands are down. And they're working and moving, hands are down, shooting the jabs, popping a jab, popping a right hand. Bam! And their hands are down. And they go, how come he can hold his hands down, but I can't hold my hands down? Some of them ask. AJ ask. That's the good thing. When they ask, we can explain to them. When you're an amateur and you're a beginner and you got your hands up, you're going to have to have your hands up because you don't see what they're doing. You're not reading what they're doing. You don't see when that shoulder moves, when that hip moves, when that toe pushes off, the right hand's coming. You don't see that. So you got to have your hands up so you can block. But when you get to the level our world champions are at, every move you make, they know what's coming. You ain't going to hit them with it just one shot, just a bam, and it hits you. It ain't going to happen. Amateur level? They can come in and just throw it overhand right, bomb, and you'll still get hit with it because you didn't see it coming. So get your hands up and you get hit with it, it won't hurt as bad. See how simple that is? But a lot of guys come to the gym and they don't ask. They just see the champ doing it and we can't get them to keep their hands up and we do everything, duct tape it up, everything else in the world. They don't listen, they still do it anyway. So they go into the, into the ring to train. 
for, for sparring, when we finally let them start sparring, sometimes we do it a little early because they won't keep their hands up. Guess what happens? My hands are down, I'm ready. Boom, boom. <laughs> and then we're standing when they wake up going, now you know why we told you to keep your hand up? Right? How does that apply over to what I'm talking about? Anybody? Just going to jump there? Huh? What did I say in the beginning? What? Okay. Okay. You got to be willing to listen and learn and then train hard to get better because God is always using what you're doing to prepare you for the future to use glory for Him, to bring glory to Him. God is always using what you're doing to prepare you, your future, to bring glory to Him. So you've got to be willing to train hard. So we're going to finish with one real quick question. I want your feedback. We'll finish it up. What can you do when you get home to your ministry? What can you do to grow in your role? Be specific and short. What you, can you personally do to grow in your role? Pray every day, okay. Take out the trash. I like that. Figure out what your role is if you don't know what it is. What? Figure out your role if you don't know. Figure out your role if you don't know. That's good. Talk to your campus minister. Communication. What? Talk to the people you don't know. I like that. Give respect to your parents. That's good. That's a good thing to go do. Give respect to your campus minister. I like that. Yes, sir. Be more in God's Word. Think about, think about that question. Share it with each other in your breakouts. What are you going to do when you get home to grow in your role? Go talk to your campus minister. What can I do to grow in my role? You might not even know what your role is, but now you should. Go ask him. He'll help you in developing a role. I'm going to close with this simple statement. I wish somehow I could burn this into your brain. I literally had this pasted on my refrigerator for years, and now I have made it into a plaque, and it's in my office, so that I see it every single time I'm in the office. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Hear it one more time. Write it down, guys. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Here's where you live. Here's where you're going. What you do for here is what's going to last. Don't get caught up on what's here and now. Thank you, guys.